0: Okay, the first guy that we're going to talk about is going to be Othniel. The Israelites do evil, and the evil is defined in context as idolatry. Of course, that included a lot of other things, sexual perversions, it was a fertility religion, all these other things. We're told that Othniel that the Holy Spirit came upon Othniel to give him ability to deliver the nation. It's important to understand that the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is not the same as the filling of the Spirit in the New Testament. He is giving the leaders ability to fulfill their their job within the theocracy. It doesn't have anything to do with their spirituality or spiritual empowerment. Okay? Just like the Spirit of God came upon Aholiab and Bezalel in Exodus to build the uh, furniture for the temple. Gave them wisdom. They're fulfilling the function. The Holy Spirit came upon us. The only people that had any relationship with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament were who? A Aholiab and Bezalel, prophets, a couple kings, and judges. What did they have in common? They had leadership function within the theocracy. That's what it was related to. It's not related to their spiritual life. It's related to fulfilling their function within God's plan. So he came to give them ability. Hmm? Give him ability. And, and, and it's important to understand that because some of these guys, one verse it says, the Holy Spirit came upon them. The next verse they sinned. <laughs> so if you don't understand the distinct role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, if you think it's like the New Testament, then you... you it leads to confusion. The Holy Spirit comes upon Othniel, give him ability to deliver the nation. Which leads to the next point that I just made. The role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is not for their spiritual growth, but for the administration of the kingdom. So we have the first judge delivers Israel. He defeats Cushan-Rishathaim. And the land has rest for 40 years. And then the sons of Israel again do evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, we have a reference earlier that I kind of skipped over. I want to go back to in chapter 1, just a minute. You have the, um, put it up here on the board, the episode with Adonai Bezek. Can you all read that? Chapter 1, verse 5. They found Adonai Bezik in, in Bezik. Adonai Bezik said, "Adonai means what? Lord, 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 not God, Lord." It's, it functions a well, lot like we'd use the word "sir," okay, or "master," something like that. Yeah, um, yeah, like we'd use the word "sir" for addressing someone in authority. They defeated the Canaanites' parasites. Adonai Bezik fled, and they pursued him and caught him. Caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Why'd they do that?
1: that to
0: Why'd he do that?
1: Disarmed It's gun with a disarmament. What? It's a similar of disarmament. No. It was a similar practice that was common in the ancient years. That was a way
0: of, I don't know. It's an early practice of, of arms control. Disarmament. Can you hold a sword without a thumb? No. Can you balance yourself and run into battle without big toes? It's disarmament. Yeah. This is just an early version of disarmament. You can't. You can't hold a spear and throw it. You can't hold a sword. You. He, it, he can't fight. He's, he's, his days as a warrior are over with. It's arms control. And. Uh, but it's pagan. See, God didn't tell them to do that. What did God say he was? What did God say they were supposed to do to their enemy? Kill it. Kill See, instead of doing what God says to do, they operate like a pagan. Yeah, <laughs> displummament.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> 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 okay. I mean, I could I could spend hours talking about all the little subtleties in this book. I, I, it's it's just it's my favorite book in the Old Testament. So Othiel has victory. Nothing bad is said about it. Nothing negative at all. He's victorious. He obeys God. He does it right. And then we come to the next guy, who is Ehud. Ehud. Now this is a lot of fun, and I love to have fun with this because because of the okay first of all we have the bad guy is Eglin and Eglin's a king of moab. Eglon means round or rotund. Now we learn in the story as you read the story that he's excessively fat yeah. so his, this is this is more of a nickname. he's fatty. The the Holy Spirit is not politically correct. He's fatty. This is is probably this is not a name you're going to find on an inscription. His name is Eklon. The episode, this whole episode, is written like a satire. There is so much humor in this thing. When I preached this message, the title was "When Lefty Killed Fatty in the outhouse." And this whole thing is designed to poke fun at this fat, corpulent king and how he is deceived and tricked and killed, and the Jews gain victory. But the whole process of how he is deceived and tricked and killed smacks of paganism, not what, how, how God would have it done. So we start to see something a little negative. There's a little overtone of something negative about about uh, Ehud. The Israelites cry out from despair, but there's no repentance. There's no change. They're just tired of going through the discipline. I know you all never did that when you were a kid, and your kids never did that. But, And then we have Ehud using deception to assassinate Eglin. It's an example of pagan methodology. We're told in verse 17 that Eglin was a very fat man. Now you just wouldn't find that in any modern in any modern uh, news account of somebody that they were just just a fat But but that's that's the picture here. And the, the, what what is being used is that Eglin's physical obesity is a picture of his mental fatness. He's rather dull. He's not real bright. And there's a, there's a lot of word plays that go on in the Hebrew here that bring out this this whole thing. So you have Ehud uses deception. Then we come to the next guy, Shamgar. Now it always bothered me for years. I mean, I, I when I was in, in in seminary, I took we we read uh, Judges in the Hebrew in our rapid Hebrew reading class and we had to translate everything and then, and then I taught it and I probably worked my way through Judges in the original and I wrote my dissertation on Jephthah I mean my, my thesis on Jephthah and I always wondered for a long time what was going on with this guy Shamgar because he's never called he's never called um, a judge and there's just one verse and often what you have is something is said in a verse that sets a stage or makes a point about the culture, about what's hap- about to happen. What's about to happen in chapter 5, rather, than chapter 4 is the episode with Deborah and Barak. Shamgar is put in here to tell us something very subtle about what's going on in Israel. See, there's no repentance with Ehud and Eglon. God delivers them but they still have a spiritual problem that they haven't recovered from. Now, I was reading through a very thick commentary, the New American Commentary series by um, Daniel Block, who's a Hebrew professor at the (coughs) Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. This guy's a whiz at Hebrew. He's got great insights. And he points out that Shamgar is a four-letter root. Okay? Hebrew is based on three-letter roots. So it's not a Hebrew name. It is a Hurrian name. Okay, now that's one part of the puzzle. The next thing that we learn, and I think I have this in your notes, is that he's also called Shamgar the son of Anath. Now who was Anath? Anath is the female goddess in the Canaanite pantheon of war. She's the goddess of war in the Canaanite pantheon. But you have, she got picked up in other pantheons. Do you know what a pantheon is? That's your collection of gods in a, in a false system. Okay, so she gets picked up by the Egyptians also. There, there's evidence that that the Egyptians also worship Anath as the goddess of war, and you you find these depictions of her where she just has you know blood dripping from her mouth and she's. She's got body parts hanging off of her hands and all this. I mean, she just wades into battle and she's bloody and she's vicious and she's the goddess of war. So why do we have this guy named Shamgar if he's a Jewish judge? Why would he be called the son of Anath? That doesn't make sense. But if Shamgar is a Hurrian name and son of Anath may indicate something else. And what? This guy What Daniel Bloch pointed out is that we now have some, some uh, evidence that at this time in Egypt's history, the pharaohs were using mercenaries. They were using foreign soldiers to beef up their troops, much like Europeans did. Europeans used Swiss guards. The Pope still has Swiss guards that protect it. And they had these... these, these and, and uh, So one of the, the, the Hurrians provide, like the Swiss, like the modern Swiss, provided mercenaries for the Egyptians. And it's just like we had like the screaming eagles. Who are the screaming eagles? Hmm? That's 101st Airborne. Okay, you got, you got, we've got different units, military units that are identified by certain mottos or mascots. Okay, there was this group of Hurrian mercenaries known as the Sons of Anak. Okay? So what you have here is what, what su- is suggested here. The text never calls him Jewish. Never says he's a judge. What you've got is no repentance under Ehud. And you, what, and you have a, a sham guard just coming in and he, he just kills a bunch of Philistines. That's all he does. He comes in and he kills a bunch of Philistines with an ox go. Right. The Jews are so screwed up so apostate that God has to use a pagan soldier of fortune to come in and deliver them. Now that sets the context for Deborah and Vera. Because people always say, well, you know, we, we ought to have women pastors and women leaders because, because look at Deborah. But see, the pattern all through Scripture is male leadership. But under pagan culture, the men aren't being men. And Barak isn't being a man. Because when Deborah says, I need you to go defeat the uh, Jabin, he says, how long ago may he go with me? You know, he's, he's already feminized. And what we see throughout the book of Judges is this thing that have the more pagan they become, the men quit being men, and the women start being men. And what happens as a corollary to that is that the women become victims of sex abuse and they become treated as sex objects and the women have a lower position in society. And you see that especially in Samson. It happens also with Jephthah. Jephthah sacrifices his daughter, doesn't think anything about it. Samson's a womanizer. Um, You just see these things going on in the text. It's not a pretty picture. This, is a, this book portrays the horrors of a pagan culture and how when you have role reversal among men and women, it leads to the fragmentation of the family, the marriage, marriage and the culture. And it's paganism that produces the abuse of women, not Christianity. Now you go back and people say, well, there was abuse a hundred years ago. Sure, there were unbelievers a hundred years ago, but you didn't have abuse like you do today. It wasn't, it wasn't as widespread as it is today. It's become an epidemic proportion because the country's become more pagan. There are no longer values. There's no longer people teaching that this is wrong. 100, 200 years ago, you had it because there were obviously sinners, but it is not characteristic of the culture because of the influence of Christianity. And now that Christianity's lost its hold on the values of the country, people are just concerned about whatever makes me feel good, and if you don't make me feel good, I'm going to beat the fire out of you. Okay, so uh, we get into this whole episode with um, Deborah and Barrett. Now, Kylan Delich, very well-known Old Testament commentary set from the early early 20th century, uh, say this gift, that is the gift of prophecy that she has, because Deborah sat under the tree and prophesied, this gift qualified her to judge the nation. The participle, judging, expresses the uh, permanence of the act of judging. First of all, to settle such disputes among the people themselves as the lower courts were unable to decide. Now, now let's think about this word for prophecy, because what did I tell you earlier? So you have a knee-jerk reaction that when you hear the word prophecy, you think this person's foretelling the future. And what did I say? The primary concept tends to relate to prosecutor. Prosecute. And how, do you think that has something to do with being a judge? Yeah. Yeah. So when it talks about Deborah prophesying, this word prophecy is a is a difficult word to deal with. You you won't find too many people who will try to. Um, uh, really deal with it honestly because it is very difficult. I do have a reference in here. In Second Chronicles 25:3. It describes Jeduthun prophesying by singing praises and thanksgiving to God. Now what we have to do is we got a word here that's, that's prophecy, and we tend to always want to plug in, plug in here this concept of foretelling, but in. Second Chronicles, we have at least one passage where it has to do with singing praise to God, and over in Judges, it probably relates more to uh, the function of a judge making decisions and prosecuting a case, and that fits also the whole concept of the, the, the role of the prophet is the one who's who's defending the law of God and bringing accusations against the people. So you see, we, we have to be careful with this word. We have to look at the context of its usage to define what the meaning is. Alright? And you can't come along and say a, a prophet is a pastor. Because they're not the same. A pastor is, is totally different. Prophet is a prophet is a, is a temporary gift that's no longer affected. That Prophets and apostles were the foundation of the church. Anybody in here in building trades? Nobody in here in building trades? Well, most of you are smart. How many foundations are there? If you have a 20-story building, how many foundations are there? One. You don't relay the foundation on every floor. You only have one foundation. So you don't repeat it in every century. You have 20 floors, you have 20 centuries, but you only have one foundation. Prophets and apostles laid the foundation of the church. They don't come into every century. The ongoing guests are evangelist and pastor and teacher. Okay, let me get ahead or we'll just be way back here. What we see here in this quote that they point out is that the palm where she sat in judgment was called after her the Deborah palm. The Israelites went up there to obtain justice. So the expression came up as applied here as in Deuteronomy 17.8 to the place of justice as a spiritual height independently of the fact that the place referred to here really stood upon an eminence. So what they're basically saying is this concept of prophecy ties in with her role as a judge. It's not that she's giving scripture or foretelling the future. That's not the, the, the nuance that's being used here. Uh, comes Deuteronomy 17.8 If any case is too difficult for you to decide between one kind of homicide or another, between one kind of lawsuit or another, and between one kind of assault or another, being cases of disputes in your courts, then you shall arise and go up. That's that same word. Arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses. So he sets up. It has to do with her position, not necessarily being up on a hill. Okay. So Deborah fulfills two roles. She's a prophetess and a judicial arbiter. And they're, pro- they're probably very closely related. I'm, I'm, I'm not being dogmatic here. I'm trying to emphasize the fact, though, that most of us have too narrow a concept of that term prophecy, and we need to deal with it in terms of how it's, how it's used in the Old Testament in a number of places. Seems Does that to be-
1: mean that she could interpret
0: the law? No, she's applying the law. There's a difference between interpreting the law and applying the law. Okay, the oppressor here is Jabin, the king of Hazor. Let's get down to 2C. The oppressor here is, is um, Jabin, the king of Hazor. He's a Canaanite. He's within the land. This is probably a dynastic name, not a, a personal name. Jabin's general is Sisera, who lived in a place called Harasheth Hagoyim. The woodlands of the nation, someplace southwest of Hatsor, probably in the Jezreel Valley. The Jezreel Valley is the same place that's referred to later as the Valley of Ezralon or the Valley of Armageddon. Now, one thing you see here is Hatzor is technologically superior to the Jews. He's got 900 iron chariots. So he has superior firepower. He's got better better technology. He's got a, he's got armored cavalry, okay And the plain of Esdralon is, is flat so that gives him maneuverability in the flat area of the valley and it's a huge valley. Deborah, whose name means B. I'll put that slide up. Deborah, whose name means B, lived in Ephraim in the center of the land. Barak lived in the north of the land. Deborah calls upon Barak to assemble 10,000 soldiers. God promised victory, but Barak is too timid. He's a reflection on the failure of male leadership during the period. And I make the point that in paganism, there's always a deterioration and reversal of the male-female roles. In fact, God reprimands Barak for his timidity and tells him that because of his timidity, a woman will get the glory that would have been his. So there's clear evidence here that that Barak is not acting as he should. He has no confidence in God. He's not acting like a man. I mean, there's a male-female uh, interchange here that's very important to observe. And he's a, just a gen, he's a general. He's, a, he, he's going to be the leader of the troops. The ultimate deliverer is Yahweh, who confuses and destroys the enemy. Judges four, fourteen. But it is Jael, the Kenite, who gets the glory for killing Sisera. And I just love the way she kills this guy. She just opens up her home, come on in, have a meal, take a nap, and then she nails him. Just puts that wooden peg right through his temple. Just nails him to the ground. Chapter 5, then, is a praise song to God for giving them the victory. Now that's important to understand. Remember I mentioned 2 Chronicles 25.3? I don't have it up here. 2 Chronicles 25.3. What happened? Deborah gives victory. She's said to be a prophetess. She's functioning as a prosecutor. And then she writes a hymn of praise. What does 2 Chronicles 25.3 say? Jedithan prophesied by singing praise and thanksgiving to God. See the connection? The word prophecy is used, the verb prophecy is used in 2 Chronicles 25.3 for writing and singing praises to God. What does Deborah do? She writes and sings praise to God. She sings a psalm to God in Judges 5. So when we see that she is a prophetess, don't read into that that she is going into some sort of uh, ecstatic state and telling the future. They're all going to have to process that for a while. It's 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 a, I, you know, it's very important to look at these things. Okay, then God's going to raise up Gideon, and we're Gideon is one of these guys that I just love to have fun with. Gideon is just I mean he's so us. He's he's out there, and, and God just has this great sense of humor. I mean the sarcasm, the sarcasm in this. In this book is unbelievable. Remember, we had Fatty and Lefty earlier. Yeah. Now we have Gideon. And Gideon, you know, lives the oppressors, the Midianites. Midianites come through. They're, they're they're slick. They're not dis. They're not putting disarmament on the people. They're just stealing their food. They come in during harvest time, right after harvest, and they let the Jews do all the work, and then they just gather up all the groceries and 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 leave. And so Gideon is hiding in a wine press, threshing out the wheat, just so he can get enough groceries for the family to get them through the winter. And the angel of the Lord shows up and says, "You valiant warrior, you!
1: <laughs> I mean, he's
0: hiding from everybody. I mean, God God has a great sense of humor and he's sarcastic. <laughs> yeah. And Gideon just plays it out because you know the last thing he wants to do is take on this role." And not only that, but when it's over with, Gideon leads the nation back into idolatry. He leads them back into idolatry. Oh, it's great. There, there's so many little nuances in here. So let's just look at it real quick. Uh, uh, 1C, Israel again. Um, well, I'll give you a little chart there, I think. Uh, there's the apostasy is described in Judges 6.1. One verse on, apost- on the apostasy. Then 6.1B 6, through 6.6. 6. Five verses describe the chastening of the Midianites and the Amalekites. And then the deliverance goes from 6-7 to 8 35. Ninety-five, 94 verses. What do you think the emphasis is on? The deliverance the grace of God. See, God's not in here pounding on them for their disobedience. He's emphasizing His grace and deliverance. So, the Israelites turn again, away from God again. They're oppressed by the Midianites and Amalekites for seven years. They finally turn to God and he sends a prophet to explain why they're being oppressed in verses 7-10. through The angel of the Lord then shows up and commissions Gideon who's hiding out in the wine press threshing the wheat commissions Gideon to deliver Israel and Gideon responds with a burnt offering. Now who's the angel of the Lord? The pre-incarnate Christ. The angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. Angels aren't worshipped. Every time you have an angel who's somebody starts to worship like John. The angel says, don't do that. But the angel of the Lord here accepts the sacrifice, steps into the smoke going up from the burnt offering and ascends to heaven. In fact, in one verse it will say the angel of the Lord. In the next verse, Gideon says, Oh Lord, and, and addresses the angel as the Lord. The angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. Mm-hmm. The angel of the Lord commissions Gideon to deliver Israel. Gideon worships with a... With a um, burnt offering. But then the next thing that happens is God has to test Gideon. Okay, I'm going to give you a big job, but before I give you the big job, we've got to take you through basic training. I'm going to give you a smaller job, because your father's got this big altar. Now I want you to understand how big this altar is. He has to use a team of oxen to pull it down. This isn't an, an altar the size of a coffee table. This is an altar the size of your garage. Okay? It's big. So Gideon is commanded to tear it down. But Gideon, once again showing that he's that valiant warrior, does it when? At night, under cover of darkness. This isn't a man who's long on courage. What have I said about... What What? what are we seeing about the what's happening to men here? You see this? They're turning soft. They, they don't have that, that moral fiber that... Strong courage. Now, he's strong because he is trusting God. Weak and feeble though it is, he's trusting God. So, <clears throat> before the believer can start functioning in the role of Christian service, there's got to be some application in the life. So, he's got to start cleaning out his own ha- the sin in his own house, right? That's that principle we keep saying again. Cleansing of sin before there's victory in life, okay? Now, Again, a reminder that the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was to empower the leaders to fulfill their task. It was not for the purpose of spiritual growth or sanctification. Now, what we have here in six twenty-five to thirty-two is the episode where Gideon is going to test God. He says, Lord. If you want me to have victory over the Midianites, then, then I'm going to put this fleece out and it's going to be dry all around the fleece and wet on the fleece. Now, is, is Gideon trying to find out God's will here? No. no. He knows God's will. What's Gideon trying to do? He's trying to avoid God's will. Trying to come up with something too difficult that won't happen so that he can rationalize not going against the Midianites. Another example of his being a valiant warrior. So he goes through these two tests and ends up. God, God uh, makes it dry one time, wet the next time, like it's supposed to be. And so Gideon has to, uh, in verses 36 to 40, Gideon has to uh, take on the, take on the task. So much for that. Okay, I'll just leave it there. It falls every week. Uh, then God's really going to show him that God's grace is made perfect in our weakness. God's grace is made perfect in our weakness. So he says, you know, you really have too many people. You really have too many people. So he's going to start reducing the size of the people. Let's Go to the chapter here. God says, You've got too many people with you. Now therefore come and proclaim in the hearing of the people, Whoever is afraid and trembling, Let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, But 10,000 remained. So how many did he have to start off with? 32,000. How many do the Midianites have? A hundred So So what is it, like four or four and a half to one? He already outnumbered. He's already outnumbered. Four and a half to one. God says, you got too many people with you. You only outnumbered four and a half to one. This isn't a challenge. So he reduces Gideon's army uh, down to ten thousand. And then he says, okay, we've got to test these ten thousand, so we're going to go down by the brook. Uh, and as they cross... Some of them are going to just reach down. They've got their focus on the enemy. they got their their, uh, uh, goal-oriented. And they're just going to scoop up water with their hand and put it into their mouth. But others are going to get down on all four, and they're going to sit there and lap up water like a dog. Well, they're not focused on the task, so we're going to send them home too. So it ends up with 300. Gideon's going 132,000 to 300. How am I going to make this happen? Well, you're not. God's going to make it happen. See, the victory belongs to the Lord. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. So they attack. Now, they have an interesting strategy here. They're going to, each one of these 300 is given a trumpet. And each one is given a torch, and it's in kind of a a pottery vessel that, that covers the light. And on the signal, they're all going to blow on their trumpet. And they're going to smash the cover, and the light's going to burst out. What's going on here? Now, confusion. It will result. God brings confusion. What, what's happening here? What's happening here is in a typical military operation, you have one trumpet, one bugler, and one torch for like a thousand men. Oh, it I think there
1: was a whole
0: lot of. So now it's going to make it look like there's a whole lot of them. It's not just 300, it's 300,000. Like they're surrounded. So, God, again, is using a uh, little ruse here to confuse the enemy. So, God sends confusion among the Midianites and the Amalekites. They panic, they run, they start killing each other. Uh, God just just great sense of humor here. Gideon, and you never would learn to study a study tactic like this at West Point or Annapolis. Or then they, they start chasing him, and while they're chasing him, God calls upon the Ephraimites to block the before the Jordan so they can't get across, and they capture orban Zeph, two of the leaders of Midian. But the fact that he didn't include the Ephraimites initially gets the gets the Ephraimites all upset. And then the people in Sukkot uh, didn't help out, so he punishes them for their lack of cooperation, which shows that he doesn't understand grace, and he was really too harsh in his punishment. And then Gideon discovered that Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian, had killed his brothers, so he executes them. He's vindictive. Is this positive? No. But then Gideon shows his tragic flaw, which is arrogance Gideon the people come to him and gratitude and they say we want you to be king and he says no I'm not going to be king but he has a son and what does he name his son Abimelech what does Abimelech mean my father is king isn't it great I mean you just have, this book is one of the funniest books there is such irony and sarcasm in this book so now Abimelech's going to be a problem. Now he takes this Ephod and he sets this up and the people come and worship the Ephod. The Ephod was like a priestly garment. And the people come and worship what's this called? Idolatry. So he leads he delivers them and then leads them right back into idolatry. Well then we come to the Abimelech interlude in chapter nine. Abimelech conspires with his I mean, this guy's just pure pagan. He conspires with his mother's relatives in Shechem to stage a coup d'etat against his father's family. Killed all of his brothers so that he's the only one, and then the people in Shechem make him the first king of Israel. Now I'm going to ask you a trivia question. Who's the first king of Israel? Abimelech! I just read it! The men of Shechem make him the first king of Israel. What the text says. You'll go, You'll trick everybody with that question. That is, that is the trick question. Because nobody gets that right. But the first king in Israel, well, that, God didn't make him now. I didn't say who was the first person God anointed to be king in Israel. I said, who's the first king in Israel? Shechemites anointed made uh, 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 Abimelech king in Israel. Right there in chapter 9. Well, Israel just self-destructs during this period. And... Um, Finally, Abimelech is killed by a woman. Drops a millstone on his head. Watch this interplay between men and women in the the whole text. Well, I don't have any more time to spend on that, so let's skip ahead to Jephthah. Jephthah. This skips down a little bit. I don't know what page it's in on your notes, but it's 8b, page 13. God raises up Jephthah. Now, He raises up two minor judges, Tola and Jair. We don't know much about them. And then in chapter 10, verse 6, he raises up Jephthah. Jephthah is an outcast and an outlaw. He's the son of a prostitute. He is, a he is talk about marginalized by the society. He's out there on the edge. And he's living, so has he been brought up on the Word of God? Is this guy thinking like a Christian, like an Old Testament believer? No. no does he have any, any biblically based norms and standards? No. He's just operating like a pagan. He's a brigand. He's an outlaw. He's a land pirate. And God is going to... But he's a believer. And God's going to use him to deliver Israel. What do you mean God is as a believer? The Spirit of God comes on him. He's still a believer. He's just a confused believer. Don't you know any confused believers who act like pagans? See, that's one of the things we learn here is that Christians can be just as screwed up as anybody else. Just because somebody's not acting like they're saved doesn't mean they're not. It just means they're not... They haven't learned anything, and they're not growing. They're not obedient. So he comes along, the Spirit of God comes on him. And um, uh, the, the bad guys here are the Ammonites, the coalition of Ammonites and Moabites, and the nation cries out for deliverance, and God raises up Jephthah, and he's really a picture of all that's wrong in Israel. He's, a, he, he's got a mixture of paganism and truth, and just like any pagan, he tries to manipulate God with a bargain. Yeah, you know, y'all know anybody who tries to manipulate God with a bargain? Mm-hmm. Hey, God, I'm gonna give a hundred bucks this Sunday. You take care of my business problems next week, okay? Mm-hmm. All right? Yeah, you know, we all act like. Oh, we have Christians who act like. Hey, okay, we all know that. So he's gonna make a bargain with God. He's gonna offer to God a burnt offering if God will give him victory. Now it's a rash. He doesn't think it through. He just he's rash. He's irresponsible. God gives him the victory and he comes home. And what's the first thing that comes out of his house to greet him? That's his vow. Whatever comes out of my house to greet me when I come home, I will offer to you as an ola. Now, ola is a technical term. We've seen it all the way through Leviticus. It means a burnt offering. And so, so Jephthah comes out. And... Uh, and, uh, I mean, his daughter comes out, and, he said, and the text says, he did unto her as he vowed. Well, what do you think that means? Well, there's a lot of Christians who just can't. He, oh, Jephthah, he's, he's mentioned in Hebrews 11. He's a, he's a believer. He can't offer his daughter as a, as a burnt offering. He's, oh, he must have just dedicated her to temple service. Well, where do we get that idea? That did not happen anywhere in the Old Testament. No, we don't have nuns until the New Testament. But God didn't uh,
1: allow the human sacrifice.
0: He didn't. This guy's operating like an unbeliever. That's the whole point. See, they get progressively worse. Gideon leads them into idolatry. Jephthah sacrifices his daughter. And Samson's a womanizer. But guess what? At critical points in their lives, they, they trust God, and they do what God wants them to do and trust, and God praises them for it in, the, in Hebrews 11. Does that encourage you? Isn't that great? That's called grace. Yeah. See, we'd be sitting here going, man, you know, Jeff, you got to get these five things right in your life before I'm ever going to let you come into my church. Before I'm ever going to do anything with you. Are you what do you
1: say about his Lord about the yeah. Are you saying that he. he uh... Offering her up as a burnt sacrifice? Yeah, he offered her up as a sacrifice. Does it say that in Scripture?
0: Yeah. His vow was, whatever comes out of the door of the house to greet me, I will offer to you as a burnt offering. And then it says, and he did to her as he bowed. There's only one conclusion. Now, people say, well, he he was saved. How could he do that? Because, you know... We have this real problem thinking that saved people can't act like unsaved people. And the whole book of Judges, is that's the whole point, is that when saved people assimilate to the thinking of the culture around them, they, they look like unbelievers. They're saved, but they act, think, and do things just like unbelievers. Look at David later on. I mean, I'm not justifying sin. I'm saying, you know, let's be real here. We're all sinners and we all fail. And if we're not getting the Word of God and consistently obeying the Word of God, then what's going to happen? We're just going to slide right back into that comfortable thought of paganism. Now, there's a civil war that breaks out after this with the Ephraimites, and and, um, and at the end of chapter 12, God raises up Ibsen, Elon, and Abdon as further judges, and then we come to Samson. And I'm really running out of time. God raises up Samson, who's set apart from birth by his Nazarite vow. Now, he's the most pagan of the judges, and he, he never delivers the nation. He dies a blind man in chains, and that's a picture of Israel's spiritual blindness and chains of paganism. Chapter 13 starts off, Israel is again disobedient and being disciplined by the Philistines. A deliverer is promised and is said to be a Nazarite. Now a Nazarite, three things. What are they? Set apart. He, he, set, he is set apart, but no wine. No wine. No wine, no wine. No wine or grape juice. Can't touch a dead body. You can't okay. touch a dead, can't a, dead body. a dead body. Can't cut his hair. Can't cut now we we're, and just just watch that. I mean, everybody focuses on the fact that when he finally succumbs to Delilah, <clears throat> she cuts his hair. But he's been violating that vow. I mean, when he got the honey out of the dead carcass of the of the lion and when he uses the jawbone of an ass, he's been violating the, the touching the dead body thing for a long time. So he, he never really keeps this. He keeps the vow only when it's convenient to him. I'm not going to ask the question if that reminds us of anybody we know, but... Most of us, if we're honest, are that way. You know, we're pretty obedient to God when it's convenient. (coughs) Now, throughout this, Samson demonstrates that his values are those of the pagan culture around him. He's a womanizer, he's a bully, he's arrogant, he is disrespectful of his parents, he dishonors the Nazarite vow on numerous occasions. His attitude towards women is typical of paganism. He putting, he's putting down women. They're dishonored. They're treated as sex objects. He bosses his mother around. You know, just principle here. Ladies, if you're not married, and you're looking for a man, look how that man treats his mother. That's going to give you a big clue how he treats women. And look how he treats his pets. That will also give you an idea of how he treats People. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of times if somebody's got an abusive streak in them, they're gonna abuse their pets and they're gonna abuse their you know parents and that abusiveness comes out in those relationships. So Samson has his motivations against the Philistines as we look at this are based on personal vendetta and lust rather than desire to, a desire to serve the Lord in Israel. Let me give you an example of what I mean here. Later on, we come into da, to, to David. David goes down to the valley of Elah, where he sees Samson comes out, and, I mean uh, Goliath come out, and Goliath says, calls a challenge to the Jews to come out and fight him. What does David say? How can you let this uncircumcised Philistine do this? What's he saying? He's looking at this from God's perspective. This guy's uncircumcised. What is circumcision to sign up? Which covenant? Abraham. Abraham and covenant. What did the Abrahamic covenant promise? Land. The land. Why? This guy doesn't have any right to stand on the land there and challenge us. God gave us that land. Why are we afraid? See, David's looking at it from God's viewpoint. How's Samson looking at it? You guys are just doing stuff to me personally. He's totally motivated by by personal issues here vindictiveness. So we see how how, how he is uh, motivated by lust, not a desire to serve, serve the Lord. Then we get into two really strange chapters. In chapters 17 to 21. 17 to 21. This is Or a The paganization of the people and the priesthood. I, just, I wish I had time to really deal with these, but I don't. In chapters 17 and 18 describes how religious apostasy begins. This is with the idolatry of Micah. And this shows how the priesthood becomes pagan. And then chapters 19 and 21 describe the gross immorality, the viciousness, the violence, and the abusiveness of the people. Religious apostasy always precedes cultural collapse. Now, do we live in a country where there's religious apostasy? So what do you expect? Cultural collapse. What are we seeing? Cultural collapse. So what happens is Micah comes along and he rejects the divinely revealed worship at Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle is kept, and he wants to invent his own religion. He's going to establish his own priesthood, his own ritual system and everything. He's going to use the same terminology. Right? You know, this is my Bible... I am what it says it is what Why? I, I, I that. Oh, that's <laughs> This is how religious deception works. I'm going to use all your wonderful Christian vocabulary, and then you're going to trust me because I sound familiar. But I don't mean what you think I mean. See, that's what God says. You know, it's not what the prophet does. I mean, what, yeah, what the, uh, what the worker of miracles and dreams does. Remember that back in Deuteronomy 13? It's not what the worker of dreams does. He can heal people. He can get sight to the blind. He may do all these things. It's what he teaches. If what he teaches isn't consistent with what has been revealed and accepted, then it doesn't matter how much he claims to adhere to the Bible. He's a false prophet. It's not the words he uses, it's the content of his message. Okay? So Micah comes along and he just uses, you know, all this stuff and even gets a Levite to come up there to try to give him legitimacy. And eventually this leads to a a major civil war and almost destroys the tribe of Benjamin in chapter 18. Then we come to chapter 19 and 20 and this deals with that whole episode about the, the man and his um, and his concubine. And it, it's reminiscent of what goes on in um, at Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, the vocabulary is very similar to the vocabulary of Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's this man. He comes to, um, he comes to town and um, he brings his... His concubine, rather than staying in Jebus, which is Jerusalem, the city of the Jebusites, which is a foreign city filled with pagans, he's going to stay in the city of Gibeah, because that's Jews. But we see that the Jews in Gibeah are worse than the Canaanites in Jebus, because he goes in there and he's offered hospitality by another man who's not a (coughs) local from Ephraim, and when the night time comes, the sodomites of the city surround the house and demand that the man be turned over to them for their sexual pleasure. Now, offended at this lack of hospitality from the neighbors, the host seeks to bargain with them to give his virgin daughter and concubine up to the men. That's a high view of women, isn't it? So he's going to give up, and so the Levite then turns over the concubine and she's gang-raped throughout the night, and, he, and barely drags herself home. When he discovers her body the next morning, shows that he had, he slept good that night. She can't respond. Now he's going to raise he's he's going to raise an alarm. And how does he do it? He cuts up her body, and since these body I mean, this is it, this is just gross stuff. I mean, if you put this into a movie, people wouldn't believe it. So we see what have we seen in Judges? We see apostasy. We see what happens that, that, that a saved nation, a redeemed people, called by God, adopted as his firstborn, does what? They they're not any different from anybody else. See, what does it take to get saved? Faith. Trust Christ is your Savior, but what does it take to grow? You've got to study the Word of God and apply the Word of God. But what happens if you don't study the Word of God and apply the Word of God? Are you not saved? No. No. You're just gonna you're gonna be saved, but not act like it, and you're gonna to succumb to paganism. And 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 we're often. The products of our own culture. That's why Romans 12 2 says, don't be conformed to what? The world. To this world, but be transformed by yeah. renewing of your emotions. Oh, it didn't say that, did it? No, no. Renewing of your mind. That's tough. That's tough. Okay. Let's get out of the book of Judges and go to Ruth. Now, I've given you all the basic information here. We only have three, uh, basically three pages. Okay, one, this is a basic timeline chart. Jephthah's dates are 1150 to 1100. Samson's dates are 1123. See, he's only 25 years younger. Then Jephthah to 1084 and Samuel is from 1115 he's only 8 years younger than Samson to 1020 oh, that's, that's, that's uh, 1123 to 1084 yeah he lives much longer you have the Ammonite oppression to 1106 ended by Jephthah and then the Philistine oppression goes to 10 uh, I, I say 1084 uh, that's where Samson ends, but actually the Philistine oppression goes on. Uh, the battle of Aphek takes place way back here in 1 Samuel 4, long before the Philistine oppression ends. Okay, uh, yeah, I'll leave that up. The title in the book of Ruth, the name of the book derives from one of the three principal characters, Ruth, who is a Moabite. Okay. Now, three characters in the book, who are they? Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. Okay. Ruth's name is mentioned only 12 times in the book. Later on, it's mentioned in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. So she is in the line of Christ. She's also going to marry a guy who's in the line of Rahab. Now, Ruth isn't an Israelite. Five times she's called the Ruth the Moabite. So that tells us that she's a Gentile, and it's the only book of the Bible named after a Gentile. The Moabite, the, Mo, the Moabite people were descendants of who? Lot and his daughters. Moab and Ammon. By the way, what city in the Middle East retains the name of Ammon and the Ammonites? Amon Jordan. That's right. That's right. Ruth, though, even though the book is named after Ruth, and we think the book is about Ruth, let me suggest that the book is not about Ruth. I know that that always shakes people up. <laughs> Ruth isn't the main character in the book. The main character is Naomi. Remember when we studied when we studied Uh, Job. I told you that Job answers the question of suffering. Mm -hmm. So does Ruth. Ruth is about how God takes the suffering of Naomi and turns it into blessing. Because the book isn't about Ruth and her romance with Boaz. The book is about how, how Naomi loses everything and how God restores her. It's a book about grace. The story begins with a crisis in Naomi's family. And it, the emphasis is on Naomi's loss, her emptiness, her bitterness. But the book concludes w- hmm? Naomi's family. Naomi's family. Okay, I'm going to go on here. I, I'm trying to find where I've hidden my Ruth. Number one. Let me get past these charts. Here we go. There's Ruth, our cartoon. Her mother-in-law is Naomi. Her husband is Malon. Her son is Obed. Her second husband is Boaz. Okay, this is where... I keep trying to find... Every semester I do this. I took the wrong thing out of here. Sorry about this. Okay. I'll give you the... uh, Ruth is a Moabitess. That's 1A. Title, Ruth a Moabitess. 1B. Fill in the blank. This is the only book in the Bible named after a Gentile. Okay? 2B. Ruth is not the main character of the book. The story begins with the crisis in Naomi's family emphasizing Naomi's loss, emptiness, and bitterness and concludes with the declaration of her fullness and blessing in the birth of Obed. In the conclusion, the writer emphasizes Naomi's blessing and virtually ignores Ruth. Pay attention to the intros and conclusions to these books. Because that's, like any book, that's where you find out what the writer's talking about. Now, I'm, I'm, when you pick up a commentary, when you pick up a theology book, when you pull up any, pick up any book, Read the introduction. That's not to be skipped over. Read the introduction, read the conclusion. Any, any nonfiction book, read the introduction first and then the conclusion. The introduction is going to tell you why he's writing and what he's writing about. You read the conclusion, you're going to find out where he's going. And then read the book. And that way, when you read in the middle, you're, you're not like you're driving blind somewhere. You're, you, you know where he's going now when you read the book, you're going to understand how you're getting you there. Okay? Introductions and conclusions are important. Fifty-five of the eighty-five verses in this short story are narrative. That means the other thirty verses are, are dialogue. Of the 1,294 words in the book, 678, that's 52.4% are dialogue. That means half the book is really dialogue. Ruth speaks least of all. Her speeches are the shortest. She speaks only 120 words in 10 speeches. Naomi, however, speaks 225 words in 12 speeches, and Boaz speaks 281 words in 14 speeches. Based on the plot, it's the book of Naomi. Based on dialogue, it's the book of Boaz. The date. 2A. The date. It's about this time that David becomes king. This is written later because the genealogy at the end ends with David. So the book is probably written about the time David becomes king. And one of the reasons the book is written is to provide background on David. That last sentence should read: He becomes king in Hebron in 1011 B.C. It's not he becomes king; he becomes king in Hebron in 1011 B.C. Now, what's what's going on here? Think about this a minute. What happens in the book of Judges? The nation starts at the top and ends at the bottom. It's a period of degradation. It's a period of paganization. It's dark. It's depressing. But there's a ray of hope. See, Ruth takes place during the period of the judges. See, God is not absent. God is still working. And even though the people have rejected Him, God has not rejected them. And so Ruth is the ray of hope of God's blessing and His faithfulness. A key word that we find in, in the book is chesed, faithful, loyal love. It is a picture of God's love Uh, during the time of of, uh, the, the apostasy of the Judges. The author is uncertain. The Babylonian Talmud attributed the book to Samuel. Modern liberal scholarship thinks that it was made up sometime after the Babylonian captivity. Of course, they don't even believe David was a real historical character, so... Place in the in the canon for a in the English canon Ruth follows Judges in the Hebrew canon it's often if it's not linked to Judges it's placed in the Ketuvim Ketuvim is the writings this is books that articulate wisdom Ruth is found in the Ketuvim because of the literary form and skill of the writer and of, of Ruth. Ruth is all about how to handle how cursing is turned to blessing. See, that's wisdom in life because we all face crises like Naomi did. But we have to learn wisdom. We have to learn that God is going to turn our suffering into blessing. So the focus here is, is to show how God works in turning suffering into blessing. Uh, fifth point. 5A, place in history, I've already commented, it's during the time of the Judges, so the theme relates to sanctification. Uh, Ruth must be understood in the context of the blessing, cursing, and the Mosaic Covenant. When uh, Elkanah goes outside the land, or what's his name? Elimelech. Elkanah is the father of Samuel. Uh when a goes outside the land with, with Naomi, that's a picture of what? Being outside the place of blessing. Going outside the land is a place of being out of God's plan, but there's an emphasis on Chesed, on God's faithful, loyal, covenant faithfulness. Now, 6a, the theme. The theme of Ruth is often expressed in terms of redemption. Redemption, because Boaz is a goel. And ga'al is a term for redeemer. He's the family redeemer. He's going to redeem her from her desperate situation. The theme of Ruth is often expressed in terms of redemption. And while this is an important theme, it is secondary to the theme of cursing turned to blessing. That's the fill in the blank. Of cursing turned to blessing. Or the continuous grace of God in the provision of a a redeemer. The genealogies at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book focus on Naomi, not Ruth. Naomi is the main character who suffers the loss of her husband and sons and becomes bitter. At the end of the book, she is the one who is blessed. As such, she is also a picture of how God will turn the cursing of Israel in the time of the judges into the blessing of the rule of David and eventually the rule of the Messiah. One last key point. The key word for Boaz is he's the close relative or the kinsman redeemer. The word there in the Hebrew is goel, and this refers to, it means a kinsman redeemer. It's a picture of Christ's redemption on the cross. Christ had to be our kinsman. He had to be fully human to die in our place. He had to be related to us to be our redeemer. And that's the picture that we see in this ga'al, this this goel, is that he has to be a redeemer. He has to be one of us. Yeah, the kinsman redeemer. That's the fill in the blank. And then I give you a little outline of the book. But once you understand the theme and structure of the book, it helps you understand what's going on there.